the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth, but they were shapeless and empty. They were a great void, a vast nothingness. Then God spoke. And with every word, he brought order to the chaos. He began by separating the light from the darkness. He separated the sky from the sea, the oceans from the land, the sun from the moon. The whole creation story in Genesis 1 is a series of complementary pairs. Chiaroscuro is a word used to describe paintings with an extreme contrast between light and dark. The word is Italian and it literally translates light-dark. This is a good example. It's Caravaggio's The Calling of St. Matthew. And in the paintings like this one, artists use the light to create drama and depth, to make the painting seem more real. The light and the dark enhance one another. It's the interplay between them that makes these paintings beautiful and full of life. And so it is with every pair that God designs that's brought to our attention in Genesis 1. This carefully designed mutual benefit is the scaffolding on which God built the world. Today, we're going to focus on just one of these complementary pairs and follow its story arc throughout the whole of scripture to discover what it tells us about ourselves and about God. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is a summary. The next chapter goes into more detail and we learn that God separated woman out of man the way he separated light from darkness, land from the seas. And we are meant to see them, man and woman, as the culmination in this series of partnerships. They're different, but greater together than they would be on their own. Like the light and the dark, the man and the woman are designed to add shades of color and depth to one another's work and character. Like the way the sea shapes the coastlines into cliffs and beaches, the way its waters lifted up into clouds then rain down on the dry soil, the way the ocean curls into waves and foams at the edges when it hits the rocks and sand of the land. Two different, equally powerful and majestic entities that become more fruitful and more wonderful when you see them at work together. And the way it's described in the poetry of Genesis 1 all sounds so beautiful. So why is it that relationships between men and women so often feel more like war than art? As we've already looked at in, these, in this series, humans were created to represent God on the earth. Today, we're going to try to understand why God didn't create just one image in the garden or two images that were exactly the same. Why did he make them male and female? And what does that mean for us? First, God created Adam. This isn't an accident. It's meant to tell us something about Adam's place in the world. In the Bible, the firstborn was a position of responsibility and authority. And Adam is given a special responsibility for the garden and its inhabitants. 
which is why when it all goes wrong, God confronts Adam first. But if we think Eve is somehow less valuable because she came second, we have misunderstood the whole story. Because of the way women have been treated, we can feel like there is something inherently worthless and powerless about being female. But that's not what the Bible says. Because of Genesis 1, we already know that male and female are equal in value. The world needs both male and female, the way it needs day and night, land and sea, sun and moon. These forces are necessary for life to exist on our planet. And without Eve, Adam cannot fully represent the God who made him. The first time God describes himself is in the book of Exodus. He's demonstrated what he's like before this, but the first time he tells us what he's like, he calls himself compassionate. It might say gracious in your translation. But this word compassionate in Hebrew is related to the word for womb. God is calling himself womb-like. At the heart of God, we find characteristics that are uniquely female as well as male. When woman is described as Adam's helper in verse 18 in Genesis, we could probably better translate it as ally. It's a word often used to describe God as our helper, and it's almost always used when God is coming to rescue Israel. It's the word used in Psalm 46 when it says God is a very present help in trouble. And man and woman are both commissioned together to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over every living thing that moves. God delegates to them the very work he's done in creation. Subdue the wild earth and bring it to order. Fill that subdued earth with life. But from the beginning, man and woman appear to do this in slightly different ways. In the first three days of creation, God ordered the world. He did this by naming forces like day and night, the heavens and the earth, and the seas. God then delegated this task to Adam. He gets to name the animals. He shares in God's work of ordering the world. We learn that God put Adam in the garden to work it and keep it. And the word keep here means guard. So Adam is charged to protect the garden. And this is a theme that we will see throughout the whole of scripture. Men being asked to guard what is sacred. And it reflects the nature of our God, who is our refuge and strength. In order to protect the garden, Adam needed to know a vital truth, which God then entrusted to him. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God gave him what he needed to do, what he asked him to do. So in the first three days of creation, God ordered the world. And in the second, God filled the world he had constructed with the sun and moon and stars, with planets and animals and birds and fish, and his favorite, people. This act of creation, of multiplying life, was his greatest delight. And he chose to delegate it primarily to the woman. She's called the mother of all living. This isn't just a name, it's her calling. And its meaning goes far beyond bearing biological children. 
as we'll see later. Then there was a snake. In Genesis 3, we watch man and woman do the exact opposite of everything they were meant to do. Adam should have protected the garden and Eve from the snake. That was his responsibility. It shouldn't have been there to lie to Eve in the first place. But when it was, he had every opportunity to speak up and defend the truth. Instead, he's silent. And when God asks him later on what happened, when God holds him accountable for the mess, Adam shirks his responsibility and blames Eve. And Eve, instead of helping Adam in ruling and reigning in the garden, helps the snake instead. Adam is clearly with her, but she doesn't ask for his advice or opinion. Adam, who is meant to guard and protect, is instead incredibly passive. And Eve, who is meant to be the mother of all living, instead becomes the vehicle for death into the world. In taking and eating the fruit, Adam and Eve broke everything, including their relationship with one another. They ushered in a world where relationships between men and women are fraught and divided instead of peaceful and powerful. Where men and women use one another as objects instead of honoring and respecting each other as sacred. Where women characterize men for their failures and belittle them with their words. Where men who are depressed are much less likely to ask for the help they need and are three times more likely than women to commit suicide where men sometimes use their physical strength to oppress and abuse women instead of protect and serve them. In the UK, one in four women have been sexually abused as an adult. One in four. Just think about that in a room this size. This doesn't sound like Genesis 1, the blessed creation we read about. This sounds more like the earth is giving way and the mountains are being thrust into the heart of the sea. This is the picture of a world that's cursed. How on earth are we meant to live as God made us in this messed up fallen world where men and women don't live up to their end of the bargain? Do we give up trying to work together and just enter into a battle of the sexes? Do we just disregard all the God-given distinctions between us? Because some of those distinctions can feel offensive or unfair. When I was in my early 20s, I had wandered away from God. And around that time, I remember having a conversation with a friend. We were saying something about sports, and he made the remark in passing that men tend to be physically stronger than women. Not that all men are stronger than all women, but that generally, most men are stronger than most women. Excuse me? I was so offended. How dare he? I grew up playing sports. I was good at sports. I was better than a lot of men at sports. Am I not physically strong? That's not what he was saying. But I couldn't agree with him. I couldn't say out loud that his claim was true, even though statistics and science back it up. Testosterone makes muscles grow quicker and stronger, 
and prevents muscles from breaking down. After puberty, men have 20 times more testosterone than women. This is exactly why we have separate men's and women's professional sports. Because we want women to have an equal chance to compete at the highest level. Distinction in this case gives freedom and opportunity to women. But I couldn't accept the truth because I felt offended by it. And I think it's common as women to feel offended by these distinctions because some men have violated them horribly. And when they do, the distinctions don't benefit us. They cause us pain instead of blessing. Instead of knowing and trusting that men will protect us, women are wandering the streets, thinking about how to protect themselves from predatory men. And it hurts, and it makes us angry because it's a perversion of God's good design. Thankfully, God doesn't leave us alone in our mess with our unanswered questions. His redemption begins immediately. The first verse after God explains the consequences of Adam and Eve's choices is this. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Right after she's chosen death, it's Adam who gives her a name that means life, that reflects who she was made to be as an image of God, not who she chose to be at the fall. God covers their shame, offers them protection, and we're left with hope that maybe this isn't the end for God's relationship with mankind or man and woman's relationship with one another. The themes in the first three chapters of Genesis of male and female as allies and images of God, their roles and responsibilities, their failures and forgiveness are repeated over and over again throughout the whole of scripture. And each time we learn a little more about who God is and who he has made us to be. The people of God, called the Israelites, ended up in Egypt. And it says at the start of Exodus, they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. They've been fruitful and multiplied. God kept his promises. This frightened Pharaoh. The Israelites were a minority group in Egypt, and there were so many of them that Pharaoh became worried about a revolt. It seemed like no matter what he did, they just kept multiplying. So in desperation, he told everyone in Egypt to kill the baby boys of the Israelites. In Pharaoh, I think we see a familiar misconception. It's the men we need to worry about, he thought. He valued physical strength, the might of men. That's the real power, he believed. Let the daughters live, he said. Let's see what happens next. The Hebrew midwives had already secretly refused Pharaoh's order to kill. You probably, maybe you could read that. But I'll read it out loud, don't worry. The Hebrew midwives had already secretly refused Pharaoh's order to kill all of the baby boys as they were born. 
And we're now picking up the story in chapter 2. A Levite woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. That was the boy Moses who God called to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt. Like so many throughout history, Pharaoh underestimated that women, too, were created to be the likeness of God on earth. Pharaoh said, I'm worried about the men. And God said, you don't know the half of it. It's the women who subverted Pharaoh's heinous plan. With bravery and faith and cleverness and skill, a team of women rose up and acted as the ally they were created to be. And they didn't do it by taking up arms themselves, by trying to be more like the men in their culture. They did it by leaning into their God-given roles as mothers and sisters and daughters. When life was threatened, particularly among the vulnerable, the women risked their lives to nurture and protect it. The men were in trouble, so the women showed up, allies in battle. Women, how are you being an ally to the men around you? in your communities, in your workplaces, your families, in our church. In the Bible, we find that women do this in a variety of ways. Esther saves her nation. Abigail gives David good advice and saves him from making a terrible mistake. Deborah prophesies to Barak. Hagar saves the life of her son. They take on the responsibility to co-reign with men on the earth. They serve as judges, work as midwives. They prophesy, write songs and poetry, fund the work of the church, run businesses, host churches, make disciples, and are co-laborers with Paul in the gospel. Female disciples of Jesus follow him faithfully all the way to the crucifixion when many others had abandoned him. Men need women. We saw that in the garden. And women, I think our men might be in trouble. We live in a world that is obsessed with their sin, with everything they've done wrong. And the world wants retribution, not redemption. Our attempt to address the abuses of men in the past is right and good. 
God confronted Adam in the garden after all, but we're in danger of leaving them without forgiveness and without a way forward. We talk so much about what men shouldn't do. There's a risk that they'll be left with no idea of what to do. And that's a problem for us and for them. Men are left feeling like there is something inherently evil about being male. And so we have young men finding role models on TikTok and YouTube because they're looking for some kind of direction. When God came to earth as a man, one of the many things he achieved was to show the world what true masculinity is. Obviously, as Christians, men and women are both being made more Christ-like with each passing day. He's an example to all of us. But it's important to point out that Jesus came to us as a biological male, which means he faced all of the tendencies and temptations that face biological men. If you're a man and you're looking for some ideas on how to be a good one, don't look at celebrities or YouTube or TikTok stars. Read the Gospels. Jesus weeps at the grave of a friend. He welcomes little children. He cooks breakfast. He shares meals with friends and with strangers. He goes out looking for men and women who he can teach and befriend. He climbs mountains to pray. He doesn't hide from difficult conversations and often he initiates them. He speaks up when the truth is threatened. Where most people would recoil, he reaches out and touches the diseased and dirty. So he has the power to make every human and creature bow at his feet. Instead, he chooses to take on the role of a servant and wash the feet of his friends. He is a safe place for women. When a vulnerable woman is about to be stoned to death, Jesus stands between her and her attackers. And when his bride, the church, is heading for the grave, he steps in and takes her place. One word that you cannot use to describe Jesus is passion. He lived with intention and purpose. He loved and served and protects the way God has always designed men to live. Where Adam and his descendants failed, Jesus succeeded. Men, this is good news for you. Because Jesus didn't come to give you an impossible standard to live up to. He came to fulfill that standard on your behalf. And now the same spirit that lived in him and that empowered him lives in you. He shows you how to be a man. And then he gives you the power you need to follow in his footsteps. For the women in the room, Jesus has always loved and served and defended you. In the Bible, we read that women sat at his feet and listened to his teaching. That a prostitute with a history of being taken advantage of by men was so safe and comfortable with Jesus that she washes his feet with her hair. Jesus told us that he came to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, 
and release from darkness for the prisoners. And I want you to know, if you have been hurt by men in some of the ways I've described or worse, then this verse is for you. One of the reasons that Jesus came down from heaven was specifically for you to bind up your broken heart and to give you freedom from the pain and trauma that has held you captive. For healing may take time, but he wants to gently lead you into a place where your self-worth and your self-image is based on the love of Jesus instead of the failures of other men. Where Adam brought division between male and female, Jesus binds us together by his blood. That's what it means in Galatians when it says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This doesn't mean that these distinctions no longer exist. This verse is from a letter written by Paul, and he goes on to give specific instructions to men and women separately. It does mean that these distinctions, our race, our class, our gender, are no longer our primary identity. We are all one in Christ Jesus, equal in dignity and value, all saved by the same unearned grace through faith. Though we come from different places and backgrounds, though we have different body parts, though we have different gifts and skills and responsibilities, our identity as images of God has been restored. And that unites us. It restores peace and harmony for male and female. And if we are in Christ first, if that is who we are above all else, that means it's Jesus who gets to define what the rest of it looks like. It's important that these distinctions remain because it portrays this distinction between male and female because it portrays how we, the church, though different from God, will one day be united with him as his bride. It portrays how a God who is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, can be the one true God. And the distinction is important because our churches and the world need both mothers and fathers. As we make disciples, build community, serve and give and grow together, and demonstrate his love to the world around us. The Bible encourages us to be mothers and fathers, sisters and brothers to one another. We are called to use our particular gifts, which will almost certainly be influenced by our biological sex, to see the kingdom of God flourish, to be fruitful and multiply together. This is one of the reasons why at Kings, our small groups are made up of men and women together and why we always aim to have a male and female leader in every group. This is why the elders, the fathers of our church family, regularly and proactively seek out the advice and counsel of women in our church. Because we believe that men and women working together is God's good design, and that when we serve one another, it benefits everyone. I quite conveniently got pregnant with our first daughter, Amelia, when we were renovating a fixer-upper of a house. It was very convenient. As you would expect, I did a lot of the behind-the-scenes work, 
coming up with ideas and sourcing things we needed while Chris took on months of the manual labor. While I was mothering life in the room, Chris was bringing order to our derelict home, making it safe for our family. We were serving in two different but equally important roles. Many of you already know this story because you were part of it. <laughs> One particular friend in this church, realizing we had taken on a project that was much too big for us, offered to help Chris every Monday evening for a month. He was a brother to us. And we had help from lots of others, men and women. Those beautiful humans there. Our brothers and sisters came to our aid. At every turn in the Bible, we see men and women working together, needing each other, precisely because we are not the same. We each display the image of God in different, equally beautiful, equally glorious ways. And that image is most complete and most glorious when men and women, though different, work together as allies. When we act and speak and think like it's us versus them, we're choosing to live under the curse. Jesus came to set us free. We'll make mistakes. We won't always get it right. We have to muddle through and figure out what it lo this looks like for us as individuals in our own specific contexts. But God has promised us that our labor isn't in vain. That one day we will finally be the male and female images of God we were created to be. When God rewrites the world in the new creation, our distinct roles and responsibilities won't be erased. They'll be perfected. In Revelation 22, it says this. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is our future. One day, we will fully be the images of God we were created to be, and it will be so evident, it'll be like it's written on our face. And we will rule and reign forever and ever with him. And we can start now. We can show our fallen world what it looks like to be sons and daughters of the living God how to speak the truth in love, how to correct and encourage, how to lead and to follow, how to love and to serve, how to remind one another who we are, our value, our worth, our purpose. This is a high calling, an office of great power and great worth. Do you want it? Men, to some of you, God is saying this morning, don't hide. 
the way Adam did. Don't be passive. Don't hide in your hobbies or behind your screen. God has plans and purposes for you. Take courage. Follow Jesus in his example. I am with you, he promises over and over again. He's inviting you to initiate the kingdom of God into your communities, your workplaces, your family, and to speak the image of God over the women around you. Women, are you being an ally for the men in your life? Are you still living under the curse of the division between men and women? Or are you living in the new life Jesus has won for you? To some of the women here, just prophetically, I believe God simply wants to say, I see you. I see you. Like Hagar in the wilderness, feeling alone. She has no idea where to go and what to do. And God says to her, I see you, I'm with you, and I'll provide for you. To those of you who are single, single women, I see you, God says. Don't be afraid. To those carrying the burden of motherhood and feeling like no one understands, I see you, God says. And to those longing for the burden of motherhood, he says, I know your pain, and I feel your grief as if it's my own. Whether children are in your future or not, he still calls you a mother of life. Men and women, only together do we fully reflect the true nature of our God. We're meant to champion one another, not compete for power and position. We're to grieve with one another when we're mistreated and celebrate each other's victories. We're to see one another with eyes of faith, the way God sees us, the way God made us. So we're going to practice that now. Together, the people of God, men and women, we're going to pray for each other. So here's what we'll do. We're going to break into groups of fours and fives, men and women together. Try and make it as evenly split as you can. You might have to turn around or move around to find a group. Men, I want you to pray for the women. And I'd really like you to go first. Then women, after you've received their prayers and the praise that befits you as images of God, you do likewise and pray for the men. If you're not yet a Christian or for any other reason you don't feel comfortable praying in the small group of people, that is totally fine. Please feel free to just sit and reflect, chat to Jesus on your own. There will be a psalm that comes up on the screen that you can meditate on and reflect on. For the rest of us, let's pray for one another. And as we do, we will show the world the true majesty and power and peace of our God.